0: want to make your way back to your seats. We'll get started in just a second. All righty. Well, good evening, everybody. It's good to see you this tonight. And, uh, Tonight we're going to look at the book of Zechariah. Okay, so last week we uh, spent one week looking at the book of Haggai. And tonight we're going to start off in the book of Zechariah. Now a couple of interesting and perhaps neat facts uh, about the book of Zechariah. Zechariah is actually the longest of all the minor prophets by virtue of the word count. So if you were to take into account how many words are in each book, The book of Zechariah would be the longest of all the minor prophets, although it has the same amount of chapters as the book of Hosea. So if that tells you anything, and Holden will be back next week. We're going to be in the book of Zechariah for quite a few weeks, uh, and Holden will take us through most of the rest of the book. But tonight we're going to start off really with just the first six verses in the book of Zechariah. And what you'll find is this section is really a prerequisite to the entire book so everything that happens afterwards really depends on what the people do in response to what God says here Um, and we'll look at that a little more as we get into our message tonight but let's pray before we start uh, and then we'll start in verse 1. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you for, uh, Lord, another opportunity just to gather here this evening. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, this book, this prophecy of Zechariah, Lord, and we thank you for uh, the truth that's in it. Lord, we pray over the next number of weeks as we look at this book, as we study it, as we uh, consider the truth and the principles uh, therein that, Lord, you would just help us and uh, help us to apply these things to your own hearts our own lives help us to learn about your word and lord help us to learn about uh, what you plan to do in the future as well lord we uh, ask for your help tonight we pray that you would help us uh, just to focus on the truth of your word in jesus name amen Alrighty, so to start off tonight, we'll look at verse 1. And that kind of really tells us the period in which this happened. Now, if you were listening and you were here last week, uh, Holden mentioned at least twice, maybe three times, that the book of Haggai and the book of Zechariah were kind of intertwined in the time period that they were written and that the Lord spoke to these prophets. And verse 1, it tells us, in the eighth month, and the second year of Darius came the word of the Lord unto Zechariah. So last week, if you looked at the book of Haggai, you would have seen that the Lord spoke through Haggai in the sixth month and the seventh month of at the second year of King Darius. And then he also spoke through that prophet on the, uh, in his third and fourth message in the ninth month of King Darius in his second year. So here we see that in Zechariah in the eighth month is the second year. So you can really see in between those first two messages in Haggai and his last two, Zechariah opens his book at that same time. So these, these messages are literally a few weeks apart and referencing the same people at the same time. But what's also helpful is to remember is both these men, their ministry was in the post-exile period when the Judeans had been released uh, from their captivity in Babylon under the leadership of Cyrus. Uh, They had come back to Jerusalem in 538 B.C. And both these men began to write in that second year of Darius, which is around about uh, 520 B.C. So about 18 years have passed since the people came back into the land and inhabited the land uh, and the writing of both Haggai and Zechariah. A little bit more tonight about who the prophet was. Who was this man, Zechariah, and what can we know about him from, uh, from the scriptures? It tells us a little more in verse 1 that um, the, the word of the Lord came unto Zechariah, the son of Berechiah. And the son of Edo, the prophet. Uh, So we see that in verse 1. So we see a kind of a lineage here uh, for Zechariah. We see that he is the grandson of Edo. And Edo is mentioned in the book of Nehemiah as one of the priests who returned with Zerubbabel. Uh, Nehemiah chapter 12 mentions that. And later in that chapter... Uh, it, it shows a little bit of a breakdown of the lineage of the priests. And we see this man, Ido mentioned again, and then Zechariah's name there as well. So this man, Zechariah, he came from a priestly lineage. His grandfather was one of the priests uh, who was uh, on the go at the time when they came back in 538 from captivity. But we also see something in Zechariah's name that gives us a little bit of an indication of uh, what this man's message was all about. So the name Zechariah literally means the Lord remembers, uh, an appropriate name when you think about it because the Lord is remembering the promises that he had promised to Israel and now that the people have returned to their land, God wants to fulfill those promises so the Lord remembers the promises that he has made to his covenant people Israel. Um <clears throat> Zechariah's father literally me, his name means the Lord blesses. And again we see in the book of Zechariah how the Lord wants to bless the nation of Israel. And then thirdly, the name Ido, the grandfather, his name literally means timely. And if you put these three pieces together, you'll literally see that um through these names the Lord remembers, the Lord blesses, and the Lord will do those things. In a timely and right manner. Really, that's a a great thought to capture as we look at the book of Zechariah, because not only does it address what's happening in Zechariah's day, but there's a lot of prophecy within this book, particularly the latter chapters, uh, looking forward to the coming of the Messiah, um, what would happen to him during his first coming and then looking ahead to his second coming and the establishment of his earthly kingdom. What we can also learn is that what was true in Zechariah's day is that God had not forgotten about his people in exile. He remembers them. He had plans to bless them, and it was all in due time. The third thing we can notice about this prophet is his age. You see, Zechariah was likely a younger man at the start of his ministry in comparison to Haggai, who was an older man during his ministry. And there's a couple of reasons that uh, support this. First of all, Zechariah's grandfather was one of the priests that returned in 538. So just 18 years later, we see that two generations have passed and Zechariah is now speaking. So it's likely that he is a younger man. Uh, just as a result of his grandfather being one of the ones that returned just a few years before that. Zechariah chapter 2 also references him as young man when God speaks to him. At one point, he calls him young man. Uh, So again, we get an indication there. And also the, the structure of the book kind of gives us an indication that Zechariah was a younger man, certainly at the time of writing the first section of the book, You see, this book of Zechariah is really split into two main sections. The first is Zechariah chapter 1 through 8, and that's really pertaining to uh, encouragement and hope um, and motivation for the people to get on with the work of rebuilding the temple. Uh, And that was the same thing that Haggai was encouraging the people to do and prompting them to do, was to get on with rebuilding the temple and stop slacking on that. Then we see in Zechariah 9 through 14, really we see that there's encouragement and hope that there's going to be better days ahead specifically for the nation of Israel. And, of course, these better days include the coming of the Messiah himself and his rule over Israel. Um, In this book alone, just to whet your appetite a little bit, and I'd love to jump ahead and get into all these, but just to whet your appetite, in this book, we see the coming of Jesus Christ at his first um, coming. We also see the rejection of Jesus Christ. We see the return of Jesus Christ, and we see the conquering of Jesus Christ as well. So there's a lot of messianic prophecy in here, and it's very exciting. Uh, if you look at it closely, you'll see uh, particularly the things pertaining to his first coming fulfilled in very explicit and... Um, close to exactly what Zechariah predicts um, in the Gospels even as well. Now, some critics have suggested that, well, because there's kind of two styles and two parts to the book, one pertaining to the here and now in Zechariah's day and one pertaining to the future, uh, that perhaps they had a different author. But really, there's no reason to suspect that. Um, The immediate task in Zechariah's day was to build the temple. Um, and then, of course, the, the end of the book looks ahead to the future hope of the eschatological fulfillment. And a man, a younger man of Zechariah's caliber, could have quite easily written both parts of this book um, in, at, at different times or at different ages. And certainly there are no contradictions in the book or no contradictions with the rest of Scripture. Now, that might sound like a lot of information just to get us started, and perhaps it is. But I think it's helpful as we start the study of this book and and we look at these first six verses and really discover what is it that's truly important to God before he reveals a number of things through this prophet Zechariah. And really that brings us to our third point, which is the problem that was um, going on within Israel in that day, and certainly had been going on in many, many years and generations before. Verse 2 tells us about that. It says, The Lord has been sore displeased with your fathers. Therefore say unto them, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Turn ye unto me, saith the Lord of hosts, and I will turn unto you, saith the Lord of hosts. You see, God makes it very clear here through the prophet Zechariah that there's a problem between him and this people. And it's the same problem that their fathers had had, that the listeners, their fathers, their grandfathers, and historically the same issues that has plagued Israel all throughout um, their history. And really that, that issue is that their hearts were not in alignment with God. And I want you to notice this in the context Think about the fact that this people has come back from exile. They are now back in their land. And here's what happened. They had returned to their land, but their hearts had not returned to God. And that's really the, the paradox that's happening here. They have come back to the land under great circumstances. But at this point in Judean history, they're not doing What God had asked them to do. God told them to go back and made provision for them to go back and rebuild the temple, and they had slacked in doing that. Last week, Holden uh, made the point through the prophet um, Haggai, and he said, Are we obeying God and doing what he has asked us to do? And Holden made this point. I thought this was really helpful. He said, They figured out who to worship, they knew they were meant to worship God and not idols but they were not thinking about how they were worshiping. They were not thinking about their attitude, their obedience, their love for God, or their wholehearted worship of him. Haggai chapter 2 verse 10 gives us a little insight into this. And if you notice, uh, the date on this is a month after what Zechariah writes here in verse 1, or or chapter 1. And Haggai says, uh, these things. He basically is asking the priests about defilement. And here's a summary of the discussion. He basically says he asks the priests questions, and their response shows that they know the law. They know what makes something unclean. They answer these hypothetical questions correctly. But then God says, This is what the nation is like. They know the right answers, but they're unclean in the way that they're going about worshiping me. Their theory was right, so to speak, but their practice was out of line. And they had perhaps been defiled um, by various means, whether it was their sin, whether it was was their half-heartedness in building the temple, or perhaps it was the influence of the exile, but these people were uh, defiled um, in God's sight. And God explains everything that's been happening to them in the last 18 years in the land. He says, remember the last 18 years, there's been a lack of prosperity. There's been a lack of blessing. Uh, in Haggai verses one, uh, chapter 1, verse 6, it talks about the hole in the money sack. The idea, and me and Laura joke about this all the time, that, <laughs> that if you are you have a bag of money, it's literally like someone has made a hole in it and your money just starts to disappear it's like you put money in your pocket and then all of a sudden you go to bring it out and there's less there than there was when you put it in. That's the idea that's going on here in Haggai and that God is presenting to them that they, they, they are missing out on the blessings that are meant to be theirs because of their half-heartedness in their love for God. Even verse 17 of Haggai chapter 2, it says, I smote you, this is God speaking, I smote you with blasting, with mildew, and with heal in all the labors of your hands. Yet ye turned not to me, saith the Lord. You see, God's essentially saying, I let the difficult things happen to you when you returned in the land, because you didn't return in your hearts to me. For 18 years you forsook the temple, even though... I, God, orchestrated divinely the leaders of the world to let you come back and fund the building of this temple. I even prophesied of this back in the book of Isaiah, 300 years before the event happened, that there would be a man named Cyrus who would let you go free to go back and build your temple. And yet you still have not returned in your hearts to me. And Zechariah is really asking the same question and making that same statement at the same time to the same people. He says, God has been sore displeased. That phrase literally means very angry or perhaps angry with anger was one of the descriptions I've seen at that. And I don't even know how to comprehend that. Anger or angry with anger pertaining to these fathers, those of the previous generation, because after all that God had done, to bring this people back, to divinely orchestrate all the things, to allow them to return to their land, they still didn't worship him with a right heart and a right attitude. I want you to think about this even in light of the temple itself. You see the temple, that thing that God had sent them back into the land with the funds to rebuild, the temple was meant to be the place where Israel worshipped God. It was meant to be the place where they carried out their sacrifices and made atonement for sin. It was meant to be the place that God dwelt amongst his people on earth. And yet they didn't really care to get on with building it in those first 18 years. That's interesting and kind of ironic because after the messages of Zechariah and Haggai, it actually only took them around four and a half years to build the temple from start to, till the time that they dedicated it and it tells us that in the book of Ezra it says in the sixth year of Darius the king is when they dedicated the temple yet if you look at how many years they wasted 18 years they wasted not building the temple before that verses 4 through 6 is really God giving them a warning not to make the same mistakes as their fathers had made. Verse 4 says this, it says, Be ye not as your fathers, whom the former prophets have cried, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Turn ye nigh from your evil ways and your evil doings. But they did not hear, neither hearken unto me, saith the Lord. You see, God made it it very clear and makes it very clear that his people should learn uh, from other people's mistakes. In this case, they should learn from their ancestors' mistakes. There's many prophets that came, many prophets that spoke, that called these people to repentance. They said, turn from your evil ways, turn from your evil doings, repent, but they didn't listen. And that's, of course, why the exile happened in the first place. Verse 5 asks the first of two questions here. It says, Your fathers, where are they? The idea here, of course, is rhetorical. What was the fate of those that didn't listen to God, that didn't repent, that didn't turn again? Well, they're dead. They're gone. They're not in relationship with God. And then there's a second question. And the prophets, do they live forever? Of course, the answer is no. They don't live forever. And the idea here is if you're not going to listen to the voice of God, eventually the voice of God will be drowned out by other things or you will stop hearing the voice of God speaking to you, the voice that calls you to repentance. It's going to stop at some point here. It's symbolized by the prophets dying. Their ministry stops and the people no longer listen to what God is saying. But notice this in comparison to the father's, that died out, even the prophets who spoke God's word and weren't listened to. Here's what God says in verse 6. He says, But my words and my statutes, which I have commanded the servants, the prophets, did they not take hold of your fathers? And they returned and said, Like as the Lord of hosts thought to do unto us, according to your ways, according to your doings, so he has dealt with us. Essentially, what verse 6 is telling us is that God's words... Are going to outlast any prophet that speaks God's words. They're going to outlast any generations that may come or that may go. And ultimately, what God said was going to happen absolutely came to pass. You see here, even in this verse, that um, God had told those fathers, those former generations, that they didn't repent, they didn't turn back to Him. That judgment was going to occur, and of course, judgment did occur in the exile. And we see even here at the end of this verse a testimony of that: according to our ways, according to our doings, so He has dealt with us. So, what can we take away tonight from this book of Zechariah? Well, first of all, I think we the, the the most prominent thing that we can see here is that we. Must repent and return to God. You see, God is saying these things to the people of Zechariah here, and He's saying, Don't make the same mistake as the generations who went before and did not repent. And I think that's true for us as well. We don't want to make the same mistakes as any former generation that did not repent and fully commit ourselves to loving and cherishing the Lord. And that message is really the same all throughout history as you look at the prophets that have come and called people to repentance, to turn back to God, to deal with sin. In fact, if you look at the three minor prophets that are left, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, they all say the same thing. Return to God, repent. Malachi 3.7 even says this same phrase. He says, return to me and I will return to you. You see, the future generations of Israel as time goes on from this generation, they don't return to God the way that they ought to. And there's silence between Malachi speaking, return unto me and I will return unto you. There's silence between him and the prophet in the New Testament, John the Baptist. And of course, what does John the Baptist say when he comes on the scene? He says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. It's the same message. He's, he's calling people to repentance, to return to God. The message never changes. The repentance, the returning to God are a critical part and critically important uh, here and after in this book of Zechariah. But here's a second part connected to that is that we cannot experience blessing without repentance. You see, the entire message of Zechariah is really we cannot expect any blessing from God without first turning to Him and loving Him. With a whole heart. And that's really where Zechariah launches into this entire book of prophecy from. Um, calling people to repentance, calling them to a love, to listen to God, to hear his words, to do his statutes, to keep his law in, in, in Israel's terms, but more importantly that their hearts would just love God. You see, this is where that book launches from. God is calling them to repentance. And we're going to see that a lot of this is specific to Israel as we go through. But we partake in some of the blessings and the benefit that come and are spoken of in this book. Because, of course, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, is the one who came and Zechariah prophesied would come. He's the one that would die upon the cross for our sins. He's the one by which we can repent and we can turn and return to God but just as the principle was true for those in Zachariah's day, just because we're in the land, just because everything seems like it's okay, perhaps we're in church, perhaps we're seemingly doing the right thing. What God cares most of all and is most important to him is that our hearts are right, that our hearts are truly in a line with seeking him. Loving him and obeying him, and that's why, as he starts this book of Zechariah, he says, "Return to me, and I will turn to you." Let's pray tonight, dear Lord and heavenly Father. We thank you for, <clears throat> Lord, just this, um, just this small passage of scripture, Lord, that is so powerful and captures, Lord, the truth of the gospel, Lord. We thank you that. You have called each of us to deal with our sin, to turn to you, to repent, uh, Lord, to deal with the things in our life that uh, put enmity between us and you. And, Lord, we just pray that you would help us to assess our own lives, assess our own hearts, and and, and test ourselves whether we truly love you, whether we are truly being obedient to you and lord we pray that you would help us to repent of those things that get in the way of that lord we ask for your help with that we pray that we would be close to you um and lord we just thank you for the study tonight and we pray that you would encourage us as we go in jesus name amen
1: the most important thing our church can communicate with you is the gospel message The word gospel means good news. The trouble with most good news is that it isn't really good until you see it relative to bad news. The discovery of a new cure isn't all that helpful unless you or a loved one has the disease that it cures. In the same way, the good news of Jesus is good when it is understood in relation to the bad news of our own sin. We are all sinners. That's the disease we are all born with. And Jesus is the cure. The good news that everyone can live forever with God in heaven, not because of anything we can do, but because of what Jesus did in our place. Romans 5.8 says, But God demonstrated his love toward us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The truth that everyone, everywhere, at all times in history needs to hear is that salvation is only possible by putting our faith in Jesus Christ alone. There's no other name under heaven, given among men, by which we must be saved. Would you put your faith in Jesus Christ today? Would you be willing to pray something like this and mean what you pray from your heart? Dear Lord, I know I'm a sinner and I know I can do nothing to earn forgiveness and make myself right with you. Instead of dying for my own sins... I want to trust Christ and his death on the cross as payment for my sins. I want to repent from doing things my way and make Jesus Christ the Lord of my life. The Bible tells us that those that repent from their sin and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ in this way shall be saved. Would you believe on him today? And if you did trust Christ today, if you did pray a prayer like the one suggested a moment ago and you really meant it, would you let us know? We want to help you grow in your understanding of the good news of Jesus Christ. Maybe you have more questions about putting your faith in Christ and we have great resources to help you with that. The Exchange Bible Study is a four-week study on the character of God that will answer most of your questions about the gospel We have men and women ready and waiting to go through that with you in person or virtually, depending on your situation. Maybe you put your faith in Christ today, or or maybe you did years ago, but you feel like you've not grown in your faith. We want to help you with that as well. We have literally hundreds of helpful resources and dozens of believers ready to walk with you through them let us know how we can best encourage your journey of faith in Christ using one of the contact methods listed below. Jesus Christ loves you and wants to spend eternity with you. May God bless you as you seek to live your life for His honor and for His glory.